The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Well, good morning, everyone. So this weekend we were doing our vigil for the Buddha's enlightenment. Traditionally in Zen, the Rahatsu, which we begin on the 26th of this month, is begun on the 1st of December and culminates on the 8th, the day that is celebrated as the Buddha's enlightenment. Dadaroshi, I don't know if it was he brought that from LA or whether he started that here, but we do a vigil around the 8th and then do Rahatsu starting on the 26th, which allows, the idea is it allows more lay Sangha to participate. It's also a nice entrance into the new year. And the vigil itself has evolved. I was telling somebody earlier that in the early years, the night, I think the night before the 8th, we would, in the Zen, in the Buddha Hall, people would just sign up and we would have someone sitting through the night and then we did a service on that morning and that was it. And so it was just individual people taking turns sitting. And then I don't remember exactly when what we just did happened, but <laughs> it happened. <laughs> and it's a good thing. It's, it's really much more fitting to the occasion, uh, a better way to mark the Buddha's enlightenment and it's just a good practice in and of itself. And what I thought I'd do this morning, because normally I will you know, speak about the Buddha, enlightenment, there's, um, draw from some of the early sutras, but what I thought I'd do is sort of center the talk around one of his disciples, one of his female disciples, Rohini. And I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. And this is drawn from the Theragata collection of verses that is part of the Buddhist canon. And it's a collection of a number of verses of varying lengths, all by women disciples, senior disciples. So these were all women. I don't know if they were all ordained, but they had position and stature in the Sangha and because of their own realization and development. And many of them were teachers and leaders of the, of the community. Rohini was born into a, a wealthy family, a Brahmin family, and she was very young when she first heard the, the Buddha teaching. And she was immediately drawn to it and sort of entered into it and began to convey the Dharma, sort of speak about the Dharma to her parents based on what she'd heard and what she had learned about the Dharma and, and drew them in towards the Buddhist teachings as well. And when she was of age, it doesn't say when, she was asked, she has to be ordained, and she did ordain and became part of the Sangha and was enlightened, became enlightened. And she was considered one of the very important teachers at her time, at the time that the Buddha was living, and had many students. This verse is her um, recall of the conversation she had with her father prior to entering into the Sangha. So it's kind of interesting in that way. 
And to me, it sort of is a way of looking at how Buddha Dharma affects people, can affect people. And she speaks in terms of ascetics, and so just bear in mind that's talking about the Buddhist Sangha, primarily, the, I mean, I think she's talking about the ordained men and women of the Buddhist Sangha. And in, in this sense, don't think of ascetics so much in terms of ascetic practice, but in terms of those who freely are choosing to practice non-attachment, to practice renunciation, to practice the monastic life, and to let go of a lot of the things that most people want to have in their lives family, children, wealth, so on. So by ascetic, she means the monastics. And so her father begins by speaking to her and says, Good lady, you fell asleep saying ascetics. You woke up saying the same. You give praise only to ascetics. It must be that is what you are planning to become. You give a lot of food and drink to ascetics. Rohini, now I ask you, what is the reason? Why? Ascetics are so dear to you. And so again, to think that she was quite young when she first encountered the Buddha, and to think about how different people are, right? And how some people are born old, right? They're born already kind of not just a child in their child body, but seem to bring with them a kind of agedness, quality, intelligence, wisdom, maturity. When the Dharma encounters, or when we encounter the Dharma, and the Dharma encounters fertile ground, then it can fill one's body and mind. Some of you, I imagine, and when you first encountered the Dharma, you remember when that was. You remember how you encountered it, what was going on in your life, and why you remember what it did to you, what happened when that coming together for the first time. And so that can begin something. It can begin something conscious, wanting to find out more. It can begin something unconscious, not really being aware of what just happened, of the impact, of where it will lead. Of course, no one can know that. But it can set something into motion, that there's a kind of affinity, a resonance. It's like taking a sip of water and not realizing how desperately thirsty we were. To begin a yearning, to begin a search. In her case, she was pretty lucky because <laughs> she lived at the time of the Buddha, encountered him directly, was able to hear the teachings directly from him, become his disciple. And now her father is curious about this. What is going on? Why are you so Infatuate, why are you so filled with this sense of these, this gathering, this group of spiritual seekers? Why are they so dear to you, he asks. And then he says, they don't like to work. They're lazy. They live on what's given by others. They're full of expectations. 
They like sweet things. <laughs> I imagine they did. Most of us do. So just what is the reason why ascetics are so dear to you? <laughs> and, and I think as we listen to these words, because mostly she's talking about the Buddhist, or the, the ordained, the, the practitioners, but she's talking about herself, right? Because she is one. She will become an ordained. She will become a teacher. She will follow this path. And so she's really talking about herself as well. And so she says, you've been asking me about ascetics for a long time, Father. I will praise them to you, their wisdom, their virtue, and their effort. And to think about what is it that inspires us, right? Inspiration is such an interesting thing, right? You can't measure it or weigh it. We feel it. It can be very strong. It can change our lives. And what are those things that inspire us? I was thinking about this, and I was thinking about, well, there's inspiration, there's aspiration. It sounds like there must be a connection with breathing, to respire, to breathe. And indeed, inspiration is to be filled with an urge, a desire to do something, but it does mean to breathe in to inhale. And so it's like in that moment of inspiration, we're breathing in, inhaling something that we've encountered. In this case, a teaching, the examples of these practitioners of the Buddha that she's seen, the qualities that they possess. She's breathing those in. They're becoming part of her. Right? We feel, fill ourselves up. We've, we, it occupies us. And then that can lead us to aspiration, to seek, to accomplish, or to attain something. And in the early origins of that word, it meant to breathe upon. So that inspiration, that breathing in, then we breathe upon, we breathe out that, that inspiration, those examples. We breathe them out into our actions and through our words. We breathe them out onto others. Interesting to think about that. And all of that connected to the breath. Why does one thing inspire us versus another? Right? We might be inspired towards very worldly things. We might not be inspired by those things. We might be inspired towards other things. We might be inspired towards things that are going to ruin our lives. We can be inspired towards things that will save our lives. And how important it is to be able to encounter the examples in history and in people and living people and the records of people's lives, even in myths, that give us these embodiments of these examples of lives lived that help to plant a seed. Right? How important that is that we, in our lives and just the immediacy of our lives, the things we do, the things we need to do, to live, to survive, to, to grow. That in those examples, our lives, we, we sense that there's a possibility of something larger. When I think about my early life when I was a child, 
and then going into high school, but, you know, having friends, and I would go over to their houses, and I'd go into their houses like kids do, right? And they're, they're kids, so they're sort of invisible, you know? And, and just to see, like, the feeling in a home, the way people relate to each other. So I had friends who were, had money. I had friends whose families had very little money. Friends whose family parents were professionals. Friends whose parents were very much working class. And in each of those homes, and I wasn't, you know, conscious so much thinking about this, but I had did have an awareness that there was like a feeling tone in these homes. Some of these homes didn't feel so good, and a couple of them did. They felt good. It felt good to be in this home. It felt good to see how these people were relating to each other, to be inspired, to realize that that life is what we live every day and that sense of something larger, right? A possibility, a desire, and that we need to see it, right? That's why it's so important that we see examples of all things and all kinds of people so that all kinds of people can see themselves in others. Gender, race, sexual orientation, class. However we identify so we see others who look like us and think, oh, maybe I could do that too. With the Buddha, it's the, 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 the main point of identification is he was a human being. That's the basic criteria. That's the the sort of cost of entry. And so Rina says, they do like to work. They're not lazy. They do the best kinds of work, the best kinds of actions. That's how they free themselves of their passion and anger. And remember again, passion here is really greed. It's not being passionate. It's not being wholehearted. It's about a greediness. That's how they free themselves of passion and anger. That is the reason why they are so dear to me. Because that, the, that's the life they're living. Those are the lives they're living. That's the inspiration that they offer. They're not lazy. Right? She could have said, why don't you try and do what they do for a while? <laughs> Vasubandhu said, I do not seek the way, but I'm not confused. I don't pay obeisance to Buddha, but I don't disregard Buddha either. I don't sit for long periods, but I'm not lazy. When the mind does not seek anything, this is the way. So she's seen all the ways in which they are active. It's difficult to see what Vasubandhu is pointing to the freedom of all dualities, or the very sense of doing. I'm like this, I'm not like that. I do this, I don't do that. Fall away. She goes on to say, they have freed themselves of the three roots of evil, greed, anger, and delusion. What they do is pure. The evil they've extinguished is for them. That is the reason why they are dear to me. And here, purity is to be pure, to be free of those hindrances that hinder us. That's why it's such a good 
fitting word. They hinder us. They don't allow us, when we're caught within those hindrances, they don't allow us to be who we truly are. They obscure or dampen our deepest aspirations, our ins- the things that inspire us, the, the basic goodness that we have, that we want to strive towards embodying. They, they're, because they're, they're, they're bullies, in a sense, right? Those strong emotions are like bullies, right? They crowd out the space. They occupy our mind and body. They demand attention. They demand obeisance. They want what they want. And so to be free of those, right? to be able, which doesn't mean that they never arise, but to know how to practice when they arise, to not be deceived by them. And so she's seeing that in these practitioners, and she likes that. <laughs> she wants that. And so it's how we begin to shift from being being deceived and enticed and, you know, enchanted by those strong forces that aren't really working on our behalf. And those things just actually begin to lose their power over time. They're just not so tempting. Not even so much because we know where they will lead and that's not what we want, but they themselves are no longer that tempting. And that usually is happening at the same time that the deeper pleasure, the deeper happiness that I spoke about on Friday night is arising. I spoke about how the Buddha acknowledged that there is a profound experience of pleasure and joy and happiness that arises, but the basis for those is not sensual pleasures. It's not the things we get from our eyes and our ears and smells and tastes and touch that those pleasures still exist, and those are the attachments we're freeing ourselves of, so they're no longer bound to them. But this deeper pleasure, this deeper happiness, comes out of a deeper place that isn't dependent upon what we're experiencing through our senses. It comes out of our meditation. It comes out of what is opened up, revealed, which is always there, but those Strong negative emotions, those clashes, are what crowd them out, dampen them. She says, what they do with their bodies is pure. And it's the same with what they say, thought, speech, and words. Even what they think is pure. That's the reason why they're so dear to me. So what she's speaking of is recognizing that there's a kind of wholeness, an integration, a harmony that she's seeing within people. Right, where what they say arises out of what they think and what they do comes from what they think and say and that they're all working together. Zhijing, Dogen's teacher, Zhijing was asked by his teacher, how can you purify what has never been defiled? What does it to mean, what does it mean to be pure, a body and mind? We tend to think of that as, you know, sort of a massive cleaning of house where we, we sweep up and throw away all the bad stuff, right? 
Kazan Senji said, try as you will, you will never sweep away all of the dust. Because it's not dualistic. It's not out there. It's not in here. And so what is purity? And so Xu Jing was asked, how can you purify what has never been defiled? And it said that after he worked on this concentratedly for a year and finally came to his teacher and says, I have come upon that which is undefiled, which cannot be defiled. Rohini said, learned, they know what the Buddha taught by heart. They teach his dharma and its purpose. This is why they're so dear to me. Learned, they know what the Buddha taught by heart. And noble, they live what the Buddha taught. Minds focused, mindful. This is the reason why their ascetics are dear to me. It's not just that they've learned the Buddha's teachings and can teach them eloquently, but she sees that they are living it. Right? Which any sincere person would look for, right? So it's one thing to be inspired, drawn in to words that are powerful. But then to see, oh, this person actually lives it. Because what are we what is happening in that inspiration? It's not just that I see you over there doing this practice, living this dharma, enlightening your mind, being this good person, offering yourself a benefit. That's not the inspiration. The inspiration is I too can do this. That's the essential link. We can be impressed by other things that people do and have no intention whatsoever of ever doing those things. And there can be aspects in which we're inspired. There might be certain aspects, qualities that we try and emulate or take on, apply within our own lives. But in the Buddha Dharma, it's seen that it has been learned and lived. And that therefore I can do that. If the Buddha had realized Anyutana Samyak Sambodhi and said, oh my God, this is so amazing. I'm so sorry that you can never taste this. <laughs> right? I alone. But I'll be happy to tell you about it. Right? We wouldn't be sitting here. That would not be inspirational. It would be frustrating. <laughs> she said, they travel far, ever mindful, reciting words of wisdom, subdued. They know for themselves the end of suffering. That's the reason why they're dear to me. What is it like when we see someone doing something wholeheartedly? They've dedicated themselves to it. They're committed to something, even if it's just for one moment. To see somebody doing something with their whole being is powerful. It's like a magnet. And if what they're doing is good, if what they're doing is selfless, is that why we can be so captivated by great explorers and adventurers, artists, People who have done something deeply, really dedicated themselves deeply. And as I said this morning in the closing words, made sacrifices. Because that's what it involves. To commit myself to this thing means I'm not going to be doing other things. 
I remember years ago, sitting in Doksan room, and a student, one of our students who has a couple of children, two children, came in and was sort of, you know, whining a little bit. He said, you get to live with your teacher and do Doksan regularly and do sessions every month, and, you know, you get to train like this. And I said, that's true. I said, but when I come home, I don't have two girls run up and say, Daddy! I don't get that. And so when we make commitments, whether we think of them as sacrifices or not, it means we're going to focus here. Which doesn't mean that there won't and aren't other things in our lives. But the more we focus on the one thing, then the more that's where our energy goes. That's what she's seeing. Now, of course, she's seen monastics who have devoted their whole life to it. She goes on to say, whatever village they may leave, they don't look back with any attachment, without any longing. They just go on. That's why they're dear to me. They don't save anything that is theirs in a storeroom or in a pot or a container, searching instead for what is already prepared, what is already within them. That's why they're dear to me. They don't take gold or gold, uh, uh, gold or gold coins or silver. They get by with whatever is available. That's why they're dear to me. They know for themselves the end of suffering. May you know happiness and the root of your happiness. It's not enough just to have a moment of happiness, but to know the root of what brings forth happiness. May you be free of suffering and know the root of what causes suffering. That's what those immeasurables are pointing to. To see somebody who is going another way. Right? And so we can be inspired by their courage. I was remembering when I was in high school, it was 72, maybe three. The war was still going on in Vietnam, and there was a fight in the boys' locker room. And I was thinking about it, that when there was a fight in school, whether it was grade school or high school, it was amongst boys, like, you know, that we went to school together. We could be friends, and there'd be a fight, and we would all circle around and be cheering it on. It's like, what kind of shit is that? And there we were again, doing the same thing. And this guy, another student, jumps into the middle of it, tears them apart, and said, enough! He said, there's too much fighting going on. And I just sat there and thought, ah. I felt both inspired and ashamed. Same moment. Because I thought, I didn't even think of doing that. They don't look back with attachment, they don't save anything that is theirs. They get by with whatever is available. I thought of the teaching of having few desires, not seeking too much among the objects of the senses, not too much, a middle way. And then with those things that you choose, know how to be satisfied with them. Know how much 
to take from those very things. And what that's pointing to is freeing ourselves from the endless, bottomless pit of the tendency of desires to accumulate and accumulate and need more and more. And in their more and more, they seem to have the curious effect of satisfying less and less. Isn't that interesting? Hmm. It's like she's seen that they, these practitioners seem to know their own mind, their own body, their own person. They're not looking for somebody else. They're not looking outside of themselves. If they have what they enjoy, they enjoy it. If they don't have what they don't enjoy, then they're satisfied with without that. And then she says, those who have gone forth are from various families and from various regions, and still they're friendly with each other. This is the reason they're dear to me. And this was part of the Buddhist Sangha from the very beginning, that he ordained people from all angles, all places. I mean, he ordained Angulimala, for God's sake, a murderer. There's a sutra where a king comes to the, one of the Buddha's disciples and says, the Brahmins say that the Brahmins are the highest caste. Those of any other caste are inferior. What do you say about this? What would your teacher, the Buddha, say about this? And the disciple said, it is just a saying that people say. It's not true. The Brahmins are the highest caste. It's just something people say. And then the sutra goes on to basically show that there is no distinction in this case, between one caste and another. What she's saying is that she recognizes that within the Sangha, people from all different parts of society that would not be friendly with each other, quite possibly, in normal life, are. I remember years ago, there was an article in the Times, a big article, on the Golden Temple uh, in the in the Punjab, northern India, which is the sort of the central place of worship of the Sikh tradition. And they were talking about every day they make a, a, a public meal for anybody who wants to come. And hundreds, thousands of people come. I remember seeing just a sea of sandals outside because everybody leaves them outside. And I thought, how do you ever find your shoes? <laughs> I would be like Vimal Kurti, did you come here for the sake of the shoes? <laughs> but they talked about just the enormous work that goes into preparing this meal every single day, every single day for whoever wants to come. And they were interviewing a man from a high caste who was washing dishes. And they said, why do you do this? And he said, because in my life, I could not do this. I would not be allowed to do this in my life. I would not be able to stand next to this person and have this conversation. <laughs> so then Rohini's father responds and says, My dear, I can see that you were born in our family for a reason. You have faith in the Buddha and you're very devoted to his Dharma and his Sangha. 
you understand that his community is a great field for the merit making of merit. And so let these ascetics take our gift as well. And so just to think about her faith, her devotion from a very young age has changed her family. Right? Now, of course, it could have gone differently. <laughs> but in her case, they were, her mind, her devotion, her inspiration seems to have deeply affected them such that he seems happy to let go of his daughter so that she can enter the Sangha and be ordained. And then he says, if you fear suffering, if you dislike suffering, any offering that is made will have the greatest of consequences. He doesn't want her to suffer. And perhaps what she has helped him and her family to see is that even within their wealth, wealth, there is suffering there. She doesn't want them to suffer. And so because he sees she is, does not want to suffer, does not want just to accept samsara, he urges her on. This practice is open to all. But there are conditions that do seem to need to be sufficient. Practical, external, and internal. Unmeasurable. And that even when we encounter it, it has to be practiced. It has to be taken up as a path. And it has to be continued if we want to have it run all the way through, like she's seen, like she herself did. And there's a passage in the Lotus Sutra where the Buddha says, actually, I never die. I never enter extinction. I say that I'm going to pass away. But this is just an expedient means. Why do I do this? And then he says, if the Buddha remains in the world for a long time, those people with shallow virtue will fail to plant good roots but rather live in poverty and loneliness, will become at attached to their desires and caught in the net of deluded thoughts and imaginings. If they see that the Buddha is constantly in the world, never leaving, they will grow arrogant and selfish or become discouraged and neglectful, complacent. They will fail to realize how difficult it is to encounter the Buddha and will not approach them with a respectful and reverent mind. And so the Buddha says, so I periodically have to say, I'm going to die, I'm going to pass away. I will not be here anymore. So that we can realize how precious the gift is. It made me think in a different kind of way <laughs> of years ago, in the early years when things were tough financially, very, and that sometimes I think when Dada Roshi felt that we were, you know, being a little too lazy or not, you know, working hard enough, he would say, I don't know, maybe I should just go out and get a job. Maybe I'll just drive a truck. Earns, actually earn some money for the monastery. And we'd be like, no, don't do that, don't do that. <laughs> so he didn't say he was going to die. He just said he was going to go 
get a job outside. <laughs> so we didn't become complacent. And I thought of Dogen's Mountains and River Sutra in terms of this relationship between parent and child, where she's the student of the Buddha, and in a sense is the, the teacher of her father, of her family. And Dogen said, at the time of birth, are both parent and child transformed? We should study and fully understand not only that birth is actualized in the child becoming the parent, but also that the practice and verification of the phenomenon of birth occurs when the parent becomes the child. When the parent studies with the child. When the child has something to offer that inspires, guides, teaches, helps make larger their elder. And so the father says, therefore I take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma that he teaches and the Sangha that has qualities like his, and I will develop my moral virtues for my benefit and others. And so I take refuge in the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. I will develop my moral virtues. This will be a benefit. And then he says, I may have been born into a Brahmin family, but it's only now that I really am a Brahmin. It's only now that I have fully become myself, that I understand my life, understand who I am. I no longer have to struggle and fight against myself, against the self. I don't have to fight against my karma, my mind and emotions. I no longer need to live in fear and anxiety about impermanence and death. I no, no, no longer need to have enemies to hate. I don't have to, I don't need enemies anymore. I no longer need to be deceived by own, my own projections cling to my beliefs. I don't need these things any longer. The Father says, now I can have direct knowledge, direct insight, direct understanding, as though I am washed clean. And so as we celebrate the Buddha's enlightenment, to truly recognize the gifts we are receiving. And those gifts come with a responsibility, if we truly receive them. Because to truly receive them means to do just exactly what she's been speaking of. To practice, to, to embody, to realize, to share. And in that way, our lives themselves become unselfconsciously in a sense, just minding our own business, they become possible examples. It becomes possible that our lives themselves, again, unselfconsciously, could in unexpected moments, unbeknownst to us even, could provide moments of inspiration to somebody else. How wonderful is that? And so to not take for granted this life or think that we will live forever, that's one of the gifts that Yukon is offering to us, to show us directly 
right? The Buddha said it's a messenger. We're in there, when they're on the other side of town, we may not notice. When they move next door, we may not notice. Even when they're, when they're in our own family, we still may not notice. We should notice. So that we can be there for that person and offer them comfort, and so that we can see ourselves in that person and live. Because isn't that what it's all about? It's to alleviate suffering is so we can live. So, let us live. And there's a song coming our way. <laughs> so, Hojin Sensei and some of the Sangha members from the temple are here. Did they roll in? So, they're at the Sangha house. They've been working very diligently over many, many weeks. And they have come to present us with a, a song. So, we'll finish up. And then we'll just head right over and receive that gift. And then we'll come back and have lunch. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.